to another ABI podcast. I'm Ann Lawton, a professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law and the ABI resident scholar. Today, we will be talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's outline of proposals on payday and other forms of consumer loans. I'm joined by John Pearson, an associate at Ballard Spar. John was named among the Mountain State Super Lawyers Rising Stars in 2012 in the field of bankruptcy. Welcome, John. Hello, Ann. So the CFPB has posted online an outline of proposals that they say are a response to, quote, serious concerns about lender practices in the market for payday, vehicle title, and similar loans, unquote. So, John, could you describe some of the problems that gave rise to these proposals? Uh, Certainly. Uh, One of the main issues that the uh, CFPB was uh, focused on was the fact that many of these type of loans, and we'll focus on payday loans for a second, uh, borrowers would take out these loans and either renew or what they call roll over the loans, uh, basically extending out the maturity date. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, the principal has never been paid down and they keep incurring fees. And so an example would be, say they took out a $300 loan, uh, say the fees were going to be approximately $45, you can see how if they keep getting these loans over time that the fees sometimes would outweigh uh, the loan that was actually taken out to begin with. Yes. And so their main focus was uh, to make sure that these these type of loans, uh, that the borrowers, one, can actually repay them, and two, to uh, provide some sort of restrictions as far as the collection methods that some of these lenders have been utilizing. So, John... You've described some of the problems that the CFPB is trying to address. Are there any studies, empirical studies, talking about these abuses and sort of the cost and benefits of regulating in this area? The CFPB, when they enact rules, um, they can only do so when they identify something as unlawful, any unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices in connection with consumer products. And so you have two questions here. You have a policy and legal standpoint here. So a practice cannot be unfair if any injury it causes is outweighed by the countervailing benefits. And I would just point out that there have been a few uh, empirical studies that have been done, you know, fairly recently that would suggest that while there are obviously some abuses maybe in the industry and and obviously some some concerns on the consumer side, the fact that this financial product is a necessity uh, completely outweighs any harm. And so there's kind of like a cost-benefit analysis there as well. And so one of the questions would be is when they get to the point where they're actually going to try to make these proposals into rules, they're going to have to be able to support that with some legitimate studies. Uh, And it would be interesting to see how that plays out because to date, it doesn't seem like, I don't think they've conducted anything on their own. They may have, um, but it will be interesting to see how they justify that these rules are actually necessary in this industry. Um, so that that's actually a very interesting uh, development that we'll, we'll watch over the next few months or so. Yeah, so the other thing that I noticed when I was reading through is it also covers uh, these auto title loans. Could you just explain what those are? Certainly. Auto title loans, 
are fairly well known in the industry, and it's a situation in which a borrower go to a title company or auto loan company, uh, get a loan, and that loan would actually be secured by the title of their vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so if they go into default and are unable to pay it, the lender then can repossess the vehicle, and you have a situation in which, one, they can't pay back the loan, and two, they no longer have a vehicle. Yeah, and so one of the things I remember reading in these proposals was that they were concerned that um, borrowers then prioritize paying the car payment to the detriment of other things, right, because they're afraid they're going to lose their car. That's correct. So the, as you already mentioned, the outline, the proposals, are about both the actual lending requirements themselves and also collection practices. So let's start with the lending itself. And there's two broad categories of loans that the proposals target. What are those two broad categories of loans? Okay, they have what they call short-term loans, and these are loans that are 45 days or less in duration. Uh, And then they have something called the longer-term loans, and those loans are the ones that exceed 45 days. Yeah. And what else about the longer-term loans? I I was surprised by how high the interest rate was on that definition. That's correct. Uh, Under the long, well, maybe we could back up and talk about um, what these proposals or the alternatives they give to the lenders, uh, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, There's there's two alternatives uh, that we need to focus on on, as far as the proposals. The first one is they call it uh, prevention requirements, and actually in their press release, the CFPB called it debt uh, prevention requirements, and the other one would be debt uh, protection requirements. Now, the way this proposal is drafted as we sit here today, the lender could pick either one, and if they satisfied one, uh, then that loan would be uh, compliant with these rules, assuming they get to that point. Okay. And so when you talk about the long-term loans, what they have done is uh, propose that the loan terms have to be an all-in annual percentage rate exceeding 36%, mm-hmm. and they either create a security interest in the consumer's motor vehicle or authorize the lender to collect payments by assessing the consumer's bank account. And so what they're trying to focus on these loans are any loans that essentially exceed the 36 percent threshold, and that's for the annual percentage rate. And what you often have in these type of situations is while the percentage rate uh, based on simple interest may look like it's around 15 or 20 percent, the actual annual percentage rate, once you include all the fees, uh, could sometimes exceed 3 to 400 percent. Yeah, and so that's why they call it the all-in rate. Correct. So let's go back. You talked about these two sort of broad alternatives. Let's start with the first one and talk about the short-term loans. So let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say I'm a first-time borrower, and I want one of these short-term 30-day payday loans. I go to a storefront lender first time, and let's say that the loan's going to be due in 30 days on May 30th. So if the proposals go into effect the way that they're outlined here, what does the lender have to do before I get my money? Okay. Well, they have two options. The first one, we'll talk about the debt trap prevention option. Yes, good. And that option essentially uh, could be rephased as basically the ability to repay. And so what the CFPB is trying to do is ensure that before the loan is actually given to the borrower, that this particular borrower can repay the loan. And so under the current proposal, 
the lender must uh, determine and then verify the borrower's income and also major financial obligations. And some of the examples that you know are typically given are obviously our mortgage, rent, and other debt obligations they may have, as well as the borrower's borrowing history. Uh, and then the lender must take that and then determine in a reasonably and good faith manner that the borrower's residual income would be sufficient to cover both the scheduled payment, so the payment due within 30 days, as well as essential living expenses uh, that extend 60 days past that date. So you're looking at a 90-day time frame there. Okay. Um, and that's how you would qualify at least the first few prongs of the prevention option. Okay, so just let me get this straight then. If I went in to borrow and the loan was due at the end of May, so I'm there the end of April, beginning of May, they have to look not just at May, but they also have to look at June and July, because you said there's a 60-day window past the due date. Is that right? That That's correct. What they want to make sure that happens is that, one, you're able to pay back the loan, but in doing so, that doesn't cause you not to be able to pay your other essential living expenses. Mm. And so that's why the proposal extends uh, an additional 60 days beyond the maturity date. Okay. So you also mentioned the borrowing history. Now, I my hy- hypothetical was that I'm a first-time lend uh, borrower, excuse me. But what's the borrowing history? What do they look for? Just whether I have borrowed money from them before? That is one of the things that they also they look at, but they also make sure that you don't have any other uh, outstanding, uh, we'll call them payday loans uh, to begin with. Mm. Because what they don't want you to do is go out there and continue to get additional loans when you can't even pay the initial loan in the first place. Ah, okay. So then that takes me to the next thing that they talked about, which is this these presumptions, right? Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just carry out this hypothetical. I go in in May, and I borrow, and then middle of May, let's say May fifteenth, I go back, and say I want another. 30-day loan, so I still haven't paid off the first one. What happens then for the lender? What do they have to do? All right. In order for them to, uh, in any given two-month period, so the 60 days, uh, for the lender to give you a second or even a third loan, Mm -hmm. the lenders would then have to actually document that your financial condition has improved enough where you could repay the new loan without having to reborrow to pay that loan. Okay. Now, does it matter, let me say, let's say that I went in on May 1st and I paid that first one on May 30th, and then June 2nd I walk in for a second 30-day loan. Does that matter, or would they still have to verify on that second June 2nd loan? The way I read the proposal, they would need to verify it because they want to make sure... uh because it's within that two-month window, and so before they could give you an actual second or third loan, they would need to verify. Okay, yeah. And that's the way I read it as well. I just wanted to see whether you agreed. So what happens in this situation? I go in, borrow May 1st. Let's just assume I pay it off, right, May 30th. And then I go back and I borrow in June for loan number two. Let's say I pay that one off. I go back in July. I borrow again. So I've gotten three of them, and I pay that one off as well. Sometime in August, I go back for a fourth one. What happens there on the fourth loan? Yeah, the other requirement that they have under these proposals is that after you have three uh, loans in a row, 
that all lenders, so not just a lender that you're going to uh, now, it would be any lender, would be prohibited from making any type of new short-term loan mm -hmm. for a 60-day period, and they call it a 60-day cooling-off period in right. the uh, proposal. Now, can you explain to me why why is that the case? In other words, if I'm going in and I take out a short-term loan and I pay it off, and then I take out another one, I pay it off, and I take out another one, and I pay it off, why would they care and then essentially make me wait 60 days to borrow again? What do you think the reason is for that? Um, I think it's a, a number of reasons. The first, uh, and it's one that seems to be kind of highlighted throughout the CFPB's uh, publications, is the fear that people go in and they sometimes will continue to get these loans and they never can get, and they call it the debt trap. Mm. So they're always underwater, they're always under debt, and there's always some sort of financial stress on them. And uh, I would say that not all the studies are would agree with this, but from the CFPB's point of view, the people that typically get these type of loans are vulnerable. And so they're trying to make sure that they're protected, that they don't continue to get these loans, uh, only to have to, you know, keep getting additional loans every two or three weeks. Yeah, right. And actually, that probably was the example I gave you was probably the, uh, from according to the CFPB, the exceptional case, right, which is because what happens is it seems like people are rolling them over, right? That's what they're really concerned about, is that you're never really paying off the principal on the first or the second or the third. That's correct. It's either rolling over or sometimes they call it renewing the loan. And so it's it's another way of saying you're you're essentially kicking out the maturity date, but in doing so, all you're really paying are the fees associated mm -hmm. with that, and not the, and not the principal. Yeah. Okay. So there is also, and you had mentioned this earlier, an alternative way that the CFPB uh, suggests that lenders can comply. So if you don't like this, I have to get you know verify your income and verify your major financial obligations and all that other stuff. There's another way if I'm a lender that I could comply. And what is that alternative? So let's just take the short-term loans. How else? Yeah, that's called the debt trap protection requirements. And so it's uh, what this option is meant to do is eliminate debt traps by requiring lenders to provide what they call affordable repayment options or mm -hmm. limiting the number of loans. Mm -hmm. And so to qualify under this option, the loan uh, cannot exceed $500 and it cannot obviously last longer than 45 days. In addition, uh, there can only be one, no more than one finance charge, um, and you can't have the customer's vehicle as collateral, so title loans wouldn't qualify for this situation. Okay. And if you, if you uh, fit within those parameters, uh, notwithstanding some of the 60-day issues that we just discussed, uh, then the loan would qualify under this option. Okay. Now, you still have to verify the income, right? But you don't have to do this uh, ability to pay calculation. Is that correct? I'm sorry. That, that is definitely correct. Okay. You do need to verify the income, but as far as the ability to repay uh, is not a consideration. Okay. So let's move on to talk a little bit about the collection issues. They're also concerned about these practices associated with collecting payments from people who are taking out these kinds of loans. So what kinds of practices are we talking about? And then I guess the follow-up question would be, how do they propose fixing those practices? All right. We'll take payday lending uh, as a 
as the example, since that seems to be the one that they're focused on a lot. Uh, oftentimes, when you get a loan, one of the practice would be, for example, the borrower would give you a post-dated check. Uh, and what the CFPB is concerned about are situations in which the lender simply continues to try to either collect on that loan by either trying to cash in the check and it bounced, mm -hmm. or, for example, they could have given you a credit card or a debit card, any electronic means to make a payment. And in doing so, under certain situations, the uh, borrower is incurring significant fees at his or her bank in addition to the payday loan that they already owe and the fees that would be uh, attached to that. Okay. So how do they suggest fixing that? They gave uh, basically two, two main options. The first one is uh, they want lenders to give the borrower at least three business days notice uh, before attempting to collect the payment through any method that the borrower authorized them to do. So, for example, if you had a post-dated check, you would give them three business days before you would cash it. Okay. And the uh, point of that would be, at least from the CSPV's uh, stance, is it would give the borrower an opportunity to make sure that the funds were there so they wouldn't incur these fees. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second option is if you have two consecutive attempts to collect the money from the consumer's account, uh, and for whatever reason, the return for is insufficient funds, right. then the lender would not be allowed to make any further attempts uh, to collect from the account unless the consumer provided additional authorization for them to do so. Okay. So let me ask you this, because this was something that I was trying to figure out from their proposal. So let's say you have loan number one and then loan number two, and in loan number one, they try and collect and they get dinged twice can and then you have a payment due on the other loan so they can't collect at all past two times regardless of whether you're talking about one loan or two loans they need an authorization to go forward once you get dinged twice is that right that's correct that's how i read it yeah okay that's the way i read it as well so there's three business days um how do you get the notice to the consumer well that's a Interesting question, because um, from the industry standpoint, you would hope that you would have it uh, by any electronic means mm -hmm. that the consumer consented to. So, for example, email, facsimile. Uh, obviously, you can you know serve them a personal letter if you wanted to do that. But that's an area that the CFPB really needs to clarify to make sure that uh, email, for example, would be an acceptable means. Provided, of course, that the consumer uh, consented that that would be uh, a means for them to get uh, notice. Okay. Okay. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, these are fairly extensive proposals, a fair amount of detail here. Um, I want to talk about what you think this means for both lenders and for borrowers. So let's take the borrower first. Um, if I go in and these proposals are in effect, and I go to, to um, apply for a loan, what do I need to bring with me if I'm going to apply? Uh, well, that, that's a great question. On, from the borrower's standpoint, I would think that uh, in order to allow the lender to verify your income, uh, you would need to bring maybe like a pay stub. Uh, would be a perfect example. 
Uh, as far as expenses, I mean, there's there's ways to try to gather that. You can do a credit report, but it, it, it really you would need to show up with some sort of documentation that would allow the lender to verify that uh, the money that you say you're you're actually making uh, is true. Okay. And, of course, then there's the financial obligation, so you'd have to give them some kind of evidence of your rent or your mortgage, right? Correct. That's correct. Child support, those kinds of things. So this could be a problem for borrowers, couldn't it? It, it definitely could be a problem for borrowers. I mean, one of the things, when you think of these type of loans, uh, typically you, when you take out this type of loan, like a payday loan, uh, you need it on short notice and you need it fairly quickly. If you have a situation in which you're requiring borrowers to bring in all this documentation, uh, it could be very time-consuming, uh, notwithstanding maybe some of the costs uh, that, are gonna, that these lenders are going to incur in order to implement these proposals if they ever get to the rules. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about those costs because <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. I was thinking the exact same thing. Do you think that if these proposals go into effect, let's just assume the way that they more or less are. Do you think this is going to increase the cost of lending? I, I definitely think uh, that that's a strong uh, possibility. I know that uh, you know these rules or proposals. I'm sorry, just came out, and so you're now going to have a period where the industry is going to be have an opportunity to uh, comment more thoroughly. But their initial reaction definitely was that this is going to either uh, be too costly or it's going to drive a lot of people out of the market. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, and even the CFPB agrees, is that this is a financial product that is a need for people in this country. And so the last thing you want to do is to have a situation in which people that absolutely need to get a short-term small-dollar loan not have the ability to do so, um, because of the regulation that they're trying to impose on the lenders. Yeah. Okay. So so let's say that you have a client who runs one of these payday operations, right? What kinds of things do you tell the client they have to have, both in terms of, I don't know, computers, uh, storage of information, things they're going to have to check? Uh, what would those things be, if you can give us some idea? Well, they're definitely going to have to have some sort of database that can collect this information and and then do it in a in a manner that is efficient and timely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, if you're doing a credit check, you need to have a, an ability to be able to do that, analyze it, and make a determination whether or not uh, you can make the loan. Okay, so let me interrupt you just for a second because I don't know much about how these lenders operate. Uh, is it the case that most of them would not have that right now and it would be an additional expense for them that you know of? I, I would say a number of them probably aren't, definitely aren't equipped yet to, to be able to do this. Okay. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, it's, there are certain state laws that uh, have been imposed on these payday lenders. Mm-hmm. And so in some instances, there, there, there could be a situation in which they're already having I hate to call it traditional because it's not really traditional, but, you know, more kind of frequent underwriting process in order to get to see whether or not the loan should be issued in the first place. Okay. But I can tell you that oftentimes that's uh, that's not the case. And a, a perfect example would be verifying the income. One of the things that 
is really tricky for these uh, parties, and I know that the CFPB acknowledged that many other financial products, for example, if you take out a mortgage or get a credit card, there's some sort of uh, income to expense analysis, and they, they check it, correct? Yeah. But the problem you have is when you have credit cards, they don't have to verify. It's, it's, it's one of the – is a card act where they have to actually take it into consideration whether or not to issue the card uh, but it's not a situation where you impose a requirement that the lenders actually verify uh-huh. that what you say you make is true. Uh-huh. And so that, okay. that, that's going to be very tricky, I think, uh, one, in implementing, and, and two, from a, uh, from a you know, loss mitigation standpoint to make sure that they do it right and they're not exposing themselves to litigation. Okay. So one of the things that I was thinking about with all this, they talk about how you have to keep records. So I'm assuming that a lot of these lenders don't have, won't have at the moment, secure ways to keep, this is a lot of confidential information, how much money you make, you know, child support payments, that kind of thing. So how is that going to work? That's that's a a great point. That's another concern that some of these lenders have already voiced is how do we, you're basically going to force this out of the market because uh, these aren't high-dollar loans that are secured by real property, and so you're putting a lot of stress on them to make these kind of verifications, and then assuming you get past that, stress to make sure that the information that you have is uh, secured in a way where you're not going to violate any kind of privacy laws. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm curious what your take is on these proposals. Um, do you think, let me start with this question. Are there practices that you think the CFPB should have covered but did not? Um, from, from my point of view, I think these proposals personally have, are a little much. Um, and, and I think that there's going to have to be some reworking if hopefully mm-hmm. before you get to the rule stage uh i can I'll, i can answer it this way on the on the consumer advocate side they definitely felt the cfpb didn't do enough uh perfect example is some people think that you shouldn't give lenders an alternative meaning comply either with the prevention versus protection requirements that so they should re- comply with both. Okay. Uh, some are upset that the cfpb didn't go as far as to propose that these type of loans don't have a balloon payment because that's another big concern on the consumer advocate side. It's a lot of times these loans at the end of the maturity date, uh, there's a significant payment that needs to be paid. And quite frankly, a lot of times some of these individuals are unable to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem you have, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, is this is a financial product that is needed, uh, and there's been no alternatives by anyone to uh, for a different type of product or to really improve it. And so the fear I think that these proposals will have is to essentially either knock a lot of people out of business or make it much more difficult for people in need to get these type of loans. To get the loans, okay. Uh, is there anything in particular in the proposals that you think 
Um, so let's talk about the verification of income. Would you, you mentioned that with credit cards, for example, you have to ask about the income, but you don't have to verify. Would you think that that would be a, uh, a way to make the proposal somewhat better? You have to ask, but you don't need to verify, so it saves some time on the part of the lender, makes it easier? I, I, I definitely would. I think that would be a very good start uh, because putting that requirement on these lenders uh, is, is going to be quite difficult. Uh, and, and I'll give you a perfect example. And, and, you know, we're still in the process of the CFPB going through this, but how do you really verify income that's irregular? And, and I say that meaning that sometimes people work off of tips. Mm-hmm. How do you verify what they're actually bringing in each week? There's no pay stub for that. And, in fact, a lot of times in uh, uh, the restaurant industry, you know, their, their paycheck is fairly low because they're working off tips. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's that's a concern, and if you're not able to provide money to people that maybe need it, uh, then that's a fairly decent I'm sorry uh, percentage of people that may not have access to it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be a good start. I mean, I don't think anyone's opposing sensible regulation, but you don't want to choke off uh, the availability of credit. Yeah. Okay. Are there other things that you think could be paired back here to make these proposals, if they go into regulatory, into regulations, more reasonable or balanced, I guess? There are a number of issues that I see uh, when reading these proposals that may affect both the industry uh, on the lender side and as well as the consumer side. Uh, The first one, and I'll talk about the short-term loans, Uh, if you recall, there was the ability to repay option. One of the flaws with the proposal as written now is that the ability to repay option is based on the contractual maturity date. And this, in some instances, would actually conflict with state laws and industry practices of providing regular extensions of the maturity date, refinancings, or repeat transactions. Uh, Therefore, that is going to need to be uh, clarified and cleared up through the proposals. Uh, Additionally, under the short-term loans, rather than make substantive limitations with respect to the amount and timing of a lot of these loans. I believe that there could be some disclosure requirements that would uh, satisfy any concerns that the CFPB or other parties have. In addition, there's that three-day business uh, requirement. And if you recall, that's the requirement that before a lender uh, seeks to draw down on the uh, either the post-dated check or the credit card or any other um, uh, permission that the debtor gave them as far as payment, the uh, lender needs to give them at least three business days notice before doing so. Uh, that presents a problem uh, for a number of reasons. While I think uh, some notice is necessary would not be uh, protested too much by the industry, Three business days seems to be a little bit too long in the, in the sense that, one, uh, these types of loans are typically collected within a short period of time, and the longer that you extend the lender's ability to collect, potentially there could be a scenario, for example, where the consumer would incur additional fees and costs. Uh, another flaw that I see with these proposals is the fact that the CFPB doesn't seem to distinguish between situations in which the uh, consumer authorized the lender to uh, 
drawdown on a debit card versus, for example, a credit card. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if you recall, one of the issues that CFPB has is that they don't want a lot of these consumers to incur additional fees in the event that they have insufficient funds. However, when you make an authorization on a credit card, uh, whether or not, the, well, I should say, the determination whether or not there are sufficient funds is made at the time of the authorization and not at the time of the process, and therefore no fees would be incurred, and therefore I think that there needs to be some sort of distinction between situations in which a debit card transaction has been authorized. I see. So sort of tailor that you can't do it more than two times depending on the way that you're actually pulling the money out. That's correct. You know, if you're if you have a post-dated check, that we all understand that, you know, if, if the check bounces, you're going to incur a fee. But debit card transactions, if for whatever reason uh, there's either insufficient funds or, you know, maybe, for example, the debit card company may think that, uh, uh, some sort of fraud protection, and so they've never seen someone try to collect on this payment, so they don't allow it to happen. You have to give them authorization. You don't ever incur fees for doing that, so they right. definitely need to tailor it. To I see. That. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. You mentioned this as well uh, about the process. The, as these are just proposals. There aren't any regulations yet. What happens next in the process? Okay. Uh, what they did, the CFPB, and this was back in March, 26th of this year, is they have these proposals, and what they do is in, it's in preparation of basically of, uh, convening what they call a small business review panel. And that's required by uh, two acts, the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Act and the Dodd-Frank Act. And the purpose of that is if the CFPB is going to recommend additional rules uh, and it could potentially affect small businesses, then they're required by law to get their input. And once they get their input, I believe it's uh, within 60 days after conveying with them, they have to release their findings. And then there's going to be a public uh, comment period. And, and, you know, depending on how it goes, at some point down the road, these may actually eventually become rules. So, John, thank you for talking with us today. This is Ann Lawton with another ABI podcast. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.